0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter, will introduce you to Jane Samuel, who will discuss communicating adoption. Jane D. Samuel is a bio and adoptive parent, writer, serves as the communications director for the Attachment Trauma Network, a nonprofit organization that supports, advocates on the behalf of, and provides education for families raising children from hard places. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter.
1: Well, hello everyone. This is Karen Doyle Buckwalter here with the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And I'm so excited about a guest I have this morning, Jane Samuel. Uh, We are going to be talking about the importance of disclosure of adoption and communication about adoption with adoptive children. This fits in so well with the idea of attachment theory, because one of the things that is emphasized so much in attachment is having a coherent autobiographical narrative, knowing who you are, where you came from, and how that impacts you now is a contributor to good mental health and adjustment as people get older. So, Jane, I am so happy to have you this morning. Welcome.
2: Thanks. Thanks so much, Karen. I'm, it's great to be here. This is a topic that's really important to me.
1: Good. So, Jane, can you share a little bit with our listeners about your, your background, both professionally and personally?
2: Uh, yes. I... Um, a mother of three children, and I have two biological and one adopted child. My adopted child is now 15, and she was adopted at 12 months from overseas. Um, uh, I had a prior career as an attorney before I stayed home to care for our adopted child. Um, I was able to, I was thankfully able to do that. I know not all parents are able to do that, um, but that's what was recommended, especially since she had spent um, 12 months in a a fairly, a poor orphanage, um, in not the best situation. And uh, then I um, decided after all that time parenting that I wanted to return to a topic that had been interesting um, to me, even in undergraduate, and that was um, psychology. Um, and we have an excellent program here at our local university, um, specifically in marriage and family therapy. And that really... Um, uh, was fascinating to me because of um, my interest in attachment and adoption and the whole family system. And so I have begun that program and I'm in that program currently at the university getting my graduate degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, and this fall, I had the opportunity of doing a literature review. And uh, really looking in depth at um, one area of adoption and attachment that is around adoption communication. Um, I should say also that, um, Karen, you and I have gotten to know each other through um, a a nonprofit, a national nonprofit that I work with called the Attachment Trauma Network. And I've been on that board for five years, um, six years actually, and I edit their uh, journal. Um, where we discuss any any myriad of topics that involve uh, uh, attachment and trauma in in children, most specifically adoptive and foster children, but also other children.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm glad you're mentioning that. For the listeners, if they're not aware of the Attachment and Trauma Network, it's something to check out. A lot of great things are going on. I think the board and group of you, there are a bunch of powerhouses with <laughs> everything that you're getting done often with volunteer time. So it's a great, great resource. So, well, good. So, um, and in terms of your background, you know, it, it, it's amazing um, that you have all of this to offer and that are now in school and with your own personal experience, bringing that together is just gonna be so amazing and being a resource for families. And I love that you're doing a marriage and family therapy program because I think um, a lot of times my experience has been in specializing in this attachment and adoption that we can just really hone in just on the child and really miss the systemic issues that even though a child's difficulties may not have originated in the family system, there could be things in the family system that are perpetuating them or helping them, you know, either way. And so I think for a a number of years, um, it was sort of really looking at just pathologizing the child and Mm -hmm. I think we're getting much more sensitive um, to looking at the whole family system. For me, that's what spurned my passion for the adult attachment interview, was understanding the generational transmission of attachment in the parent's own family history. And how that affects an adoption, not just a biological child. So I'm just thrilled that that's the, prog- um, that the program you chose. That, that's just wonderful. I'm so excited for you. And I am truly
2: finding that's very informative. And even in the work around the topic we're going to talk about, adoption communication. Uh, oh, my gosh. You really get into the whole system idea there.
1: Yes, you do, because in some families, there are generations of ways that we do or don't talk about things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that comes down very strongly that people aren't even conscious of. Um, and there are, you know, as you know, anniversaries or different other things that impact one's ability, losses that impact one's ability generationally. So, So you did this literature review. I know you wrote this paper. Um, Talk to us about some of the highlights of that and what you you discovered and what you think it's important for people to be aware
2: of. Well, one of the things that I really um, found um, was the word diversity. So what I really see is we have we have now evolved into a diverse means of, quote, adoption. And I use that term, but I'm really talking about foster. I'm talking about kinship. We really do not have adoptive families the way we used to look at them. So that's very important to consider when you're saying, what are my views on communicating about this topic? Are they informed by older views? Like, Like, for example, my mother was when... When she was living and my child was young, she 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 felt that my child's grief was caused by the fact that I told my child. That's an older belief. That that was from the time period when families all looked alike, and in fact, agencies tried to match so that no one would have to approach that topic. And interestingly, that even that matching even included a recognition of the pain that the um, infertile. Um, parents might have been going through. And so if we don't talk about it, we don't have to acknowledge their pain. We can let them off and and not have to deal with that. So now we have a diverse means of of forming families. We also have diverse families. We have uh, same gender parent families. We have single parent families. We have kinship families. We have families where one sibling is living in, in another adoptive family, and these families may all have interaction, they may not. Um, another area where I see diversity is in the research itself. We have researchers looking at the psychological um, aspects. We have researchers looking at communication. We have researchers looking at um, you know, outcomes. How is this affecting satisfaction, um, even, even in couple satisfaction? Um, I remember when I began this work, we were looking at theoretical perspectives. Oh my gosh, there's like six or seven theoretical perspectives that we're looking at. Everything from social, ecological, which is where it kind of all began, to communication processes, say, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I think is important for us to remember is this diversity. And, um, And if we can carry that forward, then we can say that we've gone from this one type of family, to a very diverse family and we've gone from the one topic, which was, do we disclose? You know, and you brought that up earlier. Oh, we, we don't talk about that. What were the beliefs going on in, in the 1900s about that? Especially the mid, early and mid 1900s. And most, as you pointed out, felt, oh, we shouldn't talk about that because that will damage the child. They will be traumatized. We can't do that. There were a few lone voices early on saying, no, no, we really should. But for the most part, Um, also we so we've moved away from disclosure now to you hear talk of adoption story. We hear talk of the life book, Um, maybe an entrance narrative is a term a researcher might might run across, you know, in the parenting world. We run across that less, but we definitely hear about the adoption story. Um, we hear about getting one or two picture books and sharing that with our child. But really where we're at now, um, especially with the of David Brzezinski, um, you know, which began all the way back in the 1980s, this is one of the things that's frustrating to me as a parent is that this stuff, as you've discovered, Karen, and your work has been around for a while. Okay, the attachment stuff has been around for a while, but it's just not filtering down. And David Brzezinski talked about the fact that this is a, a um, give and take process. It occurs over the, um, the developmental um, process of the child, and it also occurs across the family life cycle. So I think mm-hmm. those are important things for us to remember. And of course, David also was very key in saying it's not just about talking, it's about how we tune with our children mm-hmm. on the, t- and, it, and it communication. I think of one incident with my daughter, let's talk about communication. My child sat there on the bed, crying, sobbing at four about missing her birth family. I really couldn't, I had no words. I just sat with her. That to me was communication.
1: Mhm. hmm mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, with what, what you're bringing up we have first historically valuing sameness let's have this child look the same let's pretend they're one of us let's not you know indicate anything other than that and just pretend we can all be the same versus a valuing of diversity um and i think also as we get better at thinking well no 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 that's not the right way to do it we're going to have an adoption story then we ran into wanting to really pretty up the story and make it just a nice mm-hmm. story. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then we sort of had to stumble through that um, and recognize that a level of honesty, even about the hard aspects, is necessary. Otherwise, your child has internal feelings that they can name or not name. They may just be held in their body or whatever. And we're giving this rosy colored story, you know, um, and that's not good either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think why we
2: need to talk about this is because of what the research, and there's not a pile of research really yet. You know, and that's one of the things working on my thesis, you know, do, do I do more research or do I do uh, uh, something that's going to do what David Brzezinski and a few others have been asking, which is filter it down to these families that, that clearly are not, for whatever reason, we could talk about that in a minute, are, are, are not accomplishing this very important task that one of the seminal researchers, David Kirk, um, you know, discovered in the 1960s that, you know, this needs to be done and, and, and how can we do it? Um, and that's the, the fact that this plays a role in attachment. It plays a role in self-esteem. It plays a role in self concept which is defined as a combination of self esteem and generalized trust well there is an important word we talk about all the time in attachment mm-hmm. is a role in adapting to the new family situation. It plays a role in forming identity of the adoptive individual, but not just the adoptive individual the adoptive family um, and and one researcher even pointed out, it can play a role in resetting societal beliefs even. So I think about a country like Singapore, where I used to live, where it is still um, kind of like the 1960s and 70s there in terms of communication. Well, if, if the families, and, and I see this one amazing um, agency um, and a, a group of social workers in Singapore called Touch Adoption, Uh, adoptive services, really rising to um, uh, the task here in trying to bring articles into the media, bring families, show the face of adoption now in a country that really just didn't want to address it because of their own cultural um, issues. And we'll look at how that is resetting societal beliefs. Maybe in 20 or 30 years, maybe sooner, we'll, we'll see that in Singapore, adoption is not second best. It's not a, 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 a taboo or a bad thing we have to keep quiet because we're not a bloodline. So I thought that was fascinating that one researcher said it's not just the identity of the individual and the family, but also the belief systems outside the family.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also think, and tell me if you agree, um, because you're certainly more the expert being an adoptive parent yourself, I think there's also a fear that lies with adoptive parents of one could be rejection, like if they know this, will they still feel the same about me as their parent? And fear of not knowing what to say. I've had a lot of families say, oh, we wouldn't talk about we don't want to talk about that. We need a therapist, you know, here to talk about that. And feeling like they're not gonna be able to handle it or manage it. It's what you shared about the experience with your daughter and how you were able to just sit with her, you knew you didn't really have words that were gonna fix this and could just sit with that amount of emotion. And not say anything, which was probably the most helpful thing you could do, but that can be really hard and scary for people and they can feel like I need to fix it and I can't have my child feeling this way. Um, We see this even with biological children, right? Oh, and and
2: I'll be honest, you know, this is my third child. I am the last one to say that I can sit with all of my children's emotions and and let them be sad. We as parents think part of our job as parents is for our children to be happy. And so we don't want, why did my mother approach, approach it that way with my child? She just wanted to see my daughter happy and she wanted mm-hmm. to see me probably happy as a parent. So if we just gloss over this, it'll be all okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, one thing that I... I kind of approached, I guess, how I learned here was my third child. You think I would have learned with the first two was we were given some, some material by our adoption agency to read. I think on that list was 20 things adoptive uh, children wish their parents knew. And I remember talking with a couple of my friends and they said, I can't read that book. That book is too scary. And Mm I, it's, you know, Karen, this is a topic that comes up over and over again when we're working on our children with um, uh, attachment, and that is we have to do our own work. And I really had to do some of my own work and say, in fact, I remember somebody saying that, me saying, oh, I I didn't wanna have to do that. I'd put that all in a box, I'd put it aside. Um, But if someone were to say to you, um, when you 're adopting this is one of the single most important things you can do for your child, just like sharing with them about um, uh, the birds and the bees talk, just like being able to sit with them in the death of a family member, um, just like being upfront with them about media and and social media and what our children need to be aware of. you know remember the stranger danger conversation these are tasks we have to do with our children. Um, We may need to see a therapist to do some of our own work or we might need to just do that on our own and be reflective and journal about it. All I know is that I had read this was very important. And when I saw my child starting to really share their grief and maybe even I'll be honest, maybe my own personal, we talked about family of origin earlier, maybe my own personal experience of watching my mother who lost her sibling. Um, to an aneurysm when they were both children. And in mm-hmm. fact, the one child passed away in my mother's, that, that, her only sibling passed away in my mother's bedroom, um, just suddenly from an aneurysm. That family was never really able to process that because of the, the, the rules at that time period, okay? In the 19, whenever this was, 40s. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was a voice in my head saying, oh my gosh, look what happens when we can't talk about something that's painful Mm -hmm. where my mind was that day when my four-year-old was crying. Mm -hmm. But, um, again, I couldn't come up with the words. I was at a loss, but all I did know was that I I couldn't walk out Mm -hmm. and I, and I, and something I had read from my agency said, and you can't make it all better either. You can't say it's going to be okay. You're with a great family now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, another thing I noticed um, as I was reading over some of the information you shared with me in your research on this, and I also know in personal conversations with you of the use of story and narrative as contributing to this process, and I think that that's a really helpful aspect also. And there's
2: something that families, you know, one of the things that the researchers uncovered was that the adoption story, thankfully, because this is what David Brzezinski has preached since the 1980s, is a, not a one-time event. It's not a sitting and telling, kind of like when we sit down and talk about the birds and the bees. It is an ongoing process. And it can be accomplished through, ver- and is being accomplished through various ways. And, and uh, it's not just books. Uh, parallel stories, parents used parallel stories as a segue. So maybe something came out about an adult adult uncle and how he was adopted, or another family was considering adoption, or a classmate was adopted. Parents can use that as a segue. Um, movies, Netflix, and, and I think of um, some of the family, my, my 15-year-old loves channels with family movies, you know, the Hallmark channel. Oh my gosh, I was working on this paper, Karen, and I was down to the wire. Uh-huh down to take a break with my daughter and there is a Christmas movie on and it is about how this prince was adopted but was not ever told I mean this is a a hallmark movie or something this season not animated okay oh my he's about to be crowned prince of this small country um you know obviously it's a fictional story and I'm sitting there with my adopted child, and it comes out that he can't be crowned because he's not bloodline. And I thought to myself, "This is just amazing this is karma. I don't know what it is. And so I think there's a plethora, as uh-huh. you know, of movies out there, everything from uh, you know uh, Despicable Me to you know about adoption. And I think mm-hmm. parents turn to those. Um, mm-hmm. Parents are doing it in lots of different ways, and I know my own daughter. As we moved away from her and I talking a lot about it, she used those movies to mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Remember one movie um, we watched, um, threw it in the DVD at Christmas, and it's called The Christmas Child, and it's got Stephen Curtis Chapman in it, mm-hmm. and his daughter, one of his daughters in it, and it has an adult man who is adopted domestically and Mm -hmm. is looking for his past. Mm. And my daughter sat there with tears streaming down her face saying, uh, she was about probably 12 or 13. And she said, where's my file? I want my file because Mm -hmm. this was looking for his file so he could find his birth parents. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Opportunity for us to have, another developmental discussion that maybe we hadn't had yet about the fact that, well, yes, a file does exist. What can we access from that file in another country versus what we can access here? Mm -hmm. And I must admit, when we threw that movie in, I'm usually very good at previewing stories and movies, even now because of my daughter's history of of, uh, attachment and trauma. And (laughs) And I hadn't checked
1: so I was sitting there watching just you know. Oh, my. Wow. Yeah. Well, what you're saying about across the life cycle, I'm so glad you're emphasizing that because it isn't. Like you said, oh, we've told her that story and they know that story so we can move on now. Um I have two chapters in the attachment theory and action book by adult adoptees. And um, one is Faith Friedlander who's in her seventies now. So she was adopted during the time with some of the things that you're talking about and share so much about how even if her mother acted like it was so okay to sort of talk about this, she could tell by her mother's body language that really it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and And dealing with this throughout her childhood this this wanting to have her adoptive mother feel okay, but yet inside needing to talk about this um, and I, I think it's a, a really poignant way that she writes about the importance of this and how it came up as she married as she had children you know all across her life
2: mm-hmm.
1: i think um I want to turn to just one little quote from David Brzezinski.
2: You know, one of the things I came across in, in working on this was openness and adoption. What is that? Is that we're talking about communication or are we talking about structural openness? And, and one important thing I want to point out is one of the studies clearly indicated that more important than structural openness, so we're talking about, uh, you know, access to the birth family, having communication with them, which is more possible in domestic adoption um, and possibly in some foster care situations, not all because, unfortunately, uh, because of trauma issues. Um, uh, David Brzezinski um, talked about openness as, openness in adoption refers first and foremost to a state of mind and heart. It reflects the general attitudes, beliefs, expectations, emotions, and behavioral inclinations that people have in relation to adoption. It includes, among other things, a willingness on the part of the individuals to consider the meaning of adoption in their lives and to share that meaning with others and to explore adoption-related issues in the context of family life and to acknowledge and support the child's dual connection to two families and perhaps to facilitate contact between the two families. And one of the things that was discovered was actually open adoption communication style is more important than structural openness in terms of adjustment to adoption and healing from past attachment hurts. And I think that's really important because we don't want to put too much emphasis on, like, for example, in my daughter's situation, she most likely will never have contact with her birth family, mm-hmm. but through open communication and attunement and, and helping her develop an identity in our own family, developing an identity about adoption, I can help her. You know? yes. and, and it's even communicating with outside the family. I remember when she was young, we were riding in a cab in Singapore. And the taxi driver looked in the backseat at my three children and couldn't figure out why I had one child of of Chinese heritage. And remember, Singapore is predominantly a Chinese society um, or culture. And uh, he was of Chinese heritage, although he lived in Singapore. And um, he said, uh, is your husband Chinese? And I, in that moment, had a few choices. I could just lie and say, this is a cab driver. I'm never going to see him again. There are millions of cab drivers in Singapore. Yes, my husband's Chinese. I could send a tone with my body and answer the question, but basically shut him down. Or I could use this as an opportunity to model, to answer his question, but to model to my three children who were sitting there, who were middle school age, elementary school age and, and preschool age, how we handle this. And I said, no, my husband's not Chinese. Uh, my youngest daughter's adopted from China. And I loved what he said next. Part of me didn't love it, but he said, Ooh, is that legal? You know? And remember in, in that, wow. that might not have been because there were still issues regarding tra- trafficking of children from China into Singapore not through agencies and it wasn't as regulated. Um, And I wanted to say, no, I snuck her out in my suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't, I said, you know, when I answered it with a little bit of information, honestly, openly, and, and kindly trying to model for my children. And I know there's differing opinions on things like that. Some say that that's your child's story. You shouldn't share your child's story in front of them with others. But I had to weigh up all that was going on, thinking that this is just a four or five-year-old. I wanted them to see everyone, including that cab driver, to see that this is not something to be ashamed of. This is something that just is one of the ways we create a family.
1: Yes. Wow. That's That's a really great story, Jane. Yeah. So, you know, in wrapping up, um, are there a couple key points you want to re-emphasize? And as you've been talking, I've also been thinking about, this is to everyone. This is to parents. This is to our communities. This is to people we get a church with. And you know what? This is even to therapists. There are still therapists who are telling families, no, don't talk about that. That'll upset them. I mean, I think it's sometimes hard for some of us who are steeped in this to to believe that that's still the belief somewhere out there, but it is. So what are some of the key things for us to remember about this topic?
2: Well, I think one key thing um, that we need to remember as we're moving forward into these diverse families and diverse ways of forming families um, is where it's not all going to be sunny. As you pointed out earlier, We are now dealing with situations, for example, in a foster um, uh, child situation. What do we share? What do we not share with this child as they get older? I'm struggling with that currently with my own child. How much do I share about what went on in her orphanage um, with her and how that affected her um, cognitively and why we may have some of the learning differences we have. Um, And the research is showing and the clinicians are saying very importantly, um, I love, um, adopting the hurt child and parenting the hurt child by Kevin Pecky where, and he's not the only one that says this, but I remember reading that book myself as a parent. You cannot keep this information from, from your child. You are fooling yourself. If you think your child does not quote, know this, they know it in their body Mm -hmm. and, and um, it's kind of like sex education. You know, we're not going to tell our children, so then they'll never know. Well, guess what? It, it's in there. They're mm-hmm. going to know. If, if we don't tell them, it'll just, it'll just be uh, something that happens, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it's recognizing that it's not all easy. But one of the researchers found that when we sandwich it between some good stuff, Okay, and we're not saying gloss over. We're not saying oh, it'll be okay because. But we're saying, you know, this this is our family. Remember being t- attuned to the child's feelings, and then being able to be honest about that information at the right developmental stage. Obviously, mm-hmm. and if it's some deep, sensitive information uh, like abuse, we may need to consult an expert and help. Yes. us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. I think another important point that I want to end with is that this is so tied to attachment, that that this is a relational activity that we do with words and our mannerisms, for lack of a better word, our body language. And it is a gift, a a attachment and relational gift that we can give our children. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we have a child come into our home, either, coming home from the hospital um, as a newborn. We have them come into their, our home as a preschooler. We have them come in as a 10-year-old.
0: This
2: is, this, I personally believe is one of the most important tasks we should be, we should be thinking about how we're going to do this. And if our agency does not bring it up, we need to ask. Yes. What you got for me on this? Do you have something I can take home? What books do you recommend? Are there some movies I can share with my child?
1: Yes, yes. And and I love how you're bringing it back to attachment also. Bowlby said, we have to become the secure base for children to be able to explore. And that's across the lifespan. Exploration into painful things is one of the key things that Bowlby was talking about, that we become a safe haven, a secure base to explore painful experiences and feelings as we get older, you know, and that's what what we see in attachment relationships as we age, that that need is still there too. So, well, you've shared so much good information. I want to thank you so much. It's always so good to speak with you. Um, Well, thank you so much, Karen, for having me. Yes. Yes. All right. Very good. Thanks again. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.